As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hay Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Hello from The Athletic. Phil Hay. Hello. And from the square ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. The Champions League returned this week, so there's no better time to sign up for all the unrivaled coverage of football on The Athletic and sport from around the world. Until February 25th, uh, they're offering new subscribers a half-price annual subscription, which works out to less than a pound a week for the whole year. To redeem that limited time only offer, go to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review. Uh, if you're not, then don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all got a little bit cocky and confident last week predicting victories for Leeds at Arsenal. Michael, we chastised you on the Square Ball podcast for your positivity this week. You said 3-0 Leeds. And Phil endorsed your viewpoint by saying, and I quote, Michael tends to know his stuff. Begs the question, who's the bigger idiot, really, yeah, doesn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. So justify yourself. Me or Michael? Both of you, you pair of idiots. Well, I, I just got giddy, and I'm allowed to, but I don't know what Phil's excuse is. He's going to be a hard-nosed journalist. He can't win, can Michael? One, one minute he's betting on Leeds getting relegated, the next he's backing them to, to trounce Arsenal, and it, and it just doesn't happen either way. I don't think we were wrong to be confident. I just think that things went wrong in a way that was quite staggering, really, at the Emirates. So I still think that the best team Leeds had come up against was Chelsea back in December. I still feel like that's probably the most complete performance that they've they've faced. But it wasn't the heaviest defeat. And I think the difference at Stamford Bridge was that you felt like Chelsea were made to work for it. You know, they did play very well and they were very good at dealing with the high press from Leeds. Um, and, and Lampard on that particular night did get his team right. But it, it was still graft to them. And, you know, there was that moment in the second half where it was potentially a foul and a, and a penalty for a, a, a kind of swing at, at Paveda in the Chelsea box. And as much as Leeds didn't deserve anything from it, it was it was kind of kind of tight and, and kind of narrow in, in periods. At Arsenal, it reminded me a lot of the, the game at Old Trafford in that it was almost 4-0 without them breaking sweat. It was goals being given away, penalty conceded really, really softly. I guess a, a real kind of foot up for a side who've not been great this season. And, and they seem to be constantly under a little bit of pressure with Arteta. It isn't quite clicking and it isn't quite going as he would like it to be. He'd, he would he would like that, you know, that sort of result, that kind of first half. 
every week if he could have it. But he won't come up against too many sides who will let Arsenal have it their own way in the way that Leeds did. And, and I felt for 45, 50 minutes, it was very Bielsa-like, the whole performance. The team didn't click, the, the system didn't really work, the press didn't take hold. And it, it almost felt like every time Arsenal came forward, they were going to score because Leeds were going to do something that made it very easy to score. I am going to disagree with you slightly there in that it's on Bielsa. Like, I think we've got these performances in us under Bielsa when it just doesn't quite fire because Bielsa's system relies on everybody doing everything to the max and output being right, decisions being made well and you know risks taken and all that sort of stuff. And then sometimes the risks backfire or the machine doesn't quite crank up into action. So we do have these in us. And, and I think as our record this season shows, we either win or lose, don't we? And and it's often quite clear in one direction or the other. It's unusual, though, to feel like everything isn't working. Um, and I don't think that was the case for the whole game. Certainly the last half hour or so, Leeds had the, the better of it. Although you felt in that period that they, they were playing a game a bit like at Old Trafford with, with nothing to lose. I think the, the fitness tends to tell as well in games like that. They certainly look to have more in the legs and, and more in the, the tank as the, the minutes were counting down. I suspect from Arsenal's perspective as well, they must have been playing through the, the closing stages thinking this this is supposed to be done. You know, this, this is meant to be finished at 4-0. And I think against a lot of teams, it, it would be completely finished. I think what was on Bielsa like was the fact that so much didn't seem to be working. You know, it is, I don't think his team selection was right on Sunday. The press wasn't there in, in any form at all. There didn't seem to be anybody up until halftime who, who was particularly playing well. Or managing. I mean, there were there were factors for that, and it, it's important to say this. You know, Mateus Cleet was obviously playing with a hip problem and, and probably shouldn't have started. They are completely devoid of options on the bench, give or take, because there are so many injuries at the moment. And and I agree with you. You know, there are games, and it happened a bit against Leicester as well, where where Leeds don't necessarily turn up in in the way that you expect them to. But I felt just the the kind of feeling of of disarray in that first half. It was. It was odd and it was unusual and, and it wasn't as if you were talking about being up against Leicester who you know have been top four all season and, and Man United who for all the very obvious flaws under Solskjaer have stuck around at that level as well. It's a, it was a kind of vulnerable and, and patchy Arsenal side who were made to look extremely good and in a way that Leeds just don't tend to do to, to pretty average opposition. You said there about him getting his, uh, his team selection wrong, Phil. I know it's kind of been done to death a little bit, the whole strike into midfield uh discussion it's been had a lot this week right across the uh well, twitter and the league united uh, podosphere but you can't help but feel i guess that that is a problem because you're breaking three or four positions to fix one yeah and i think you've touched on something relevant there I, i'm not sure i've thought about this you know since the weekend and i'm not sure actually that the debate should be framed around strike i mean there is still the, the question to be asked and the argument to be had about whether long term he is going to be a outstanding and, and a highly competent defensive midfielder. I'm I'm still not sure. I, I say every time that defensively, I see his strengths and I see what he's good at. I think passing the ball, his distribution is good from centre-back because you tend to get that little bit more time in possession. I think what Phillips does extremely well and what's probably underestimated with him sometimes is the quality and the range of passing with very little space and very little time in, in that, that area. So, I don't know whether strike is going to, you know, ultimately prove to, to be good enough there. But I think to frame it around him kind of suggests that that it is all about him. And and I think what was apparent at the weekend was that every time Phillips drops out of the team, 
and it does happen from time to time. You know, I wouldn't say he's injury prone, but it, these do tend to come around, you know, every now and again. It feels as if the only way to compensate for it is with kind of major disruptions. So, for example, on Sunday, you had strike moving into midfield. You had Ailing across to centre-back. You had Jamie Shackleton coming in at, at right-back. And it, I don't know, it, it felt on that that day, and I don't think this is the first time it's felt like this, overly complicated for a, a scenario which could be quite easily solved by having another recognised defensive midfielder in the squad. And, you know, the, the noises we're hearing from Leeds are, are that they're going to look for a player like that in the summer, not somebody to necessarily challenge Phillips or to, you know, to threaten his place, but somebody who'll be there who can step in and, and who's ready to step in and is kind of skilled. And don't get me wrong, whoever comes in is going to have to go through the usual education with Bielsa, assuming Bielsa stays. I mean, that, you know, that happens to everybody. But it just felt to me like the, there is a definite way of Leeds and Bielsa making the lives a little bit easier here and, and a way in which you don't have to go somewhere like Arsenal and also almost hand them the, the initiative by changing what had been a, a very kind of strong and structured back four against Palace. And I, I granted, I understand Palace are a different team to Arsenal, but still, you might disagree, but it felt to me as if that evaporated from Leeds and, and that for the, the initial period in the first half when the game was, was really lost, they weren't there. They were all at sea at the back. I feel like most games this season, I, I have a handle within the first five minutes of whether or not we're going to get a result from it. It seems, and it seems some teams just whether the figure is out or whether we're not quite on it, it seems quite early in a game I can kind of think, mm, a bit bit worried about this one. Obviously the Man United game, they'd scored two within about two minutes, so that was fairly obvious. But in this game, it just felt like we were going to struggle right from the kickoff, more or less. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And I think regards to like the strike discussion, you know, Bielsa's forgotten more about football than I've ever known. But there is a lot to be said for, you know, the wisdom of crowds and all that. And if everybody's saying, look, this isn't helpful when this happens, when you change all these pieces. Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's something in it. Just to um, question you on something you said there, Phil, it's the second time in a couple of weeks you've mentioned about looking at midfield resources. Can you shed a bit of light on what you think they're going to do this summer in terms of midfield? Will it be maybe two there for the centre of the park? I wouldn't be entirely surprised if it is two. I think they, they will certainly go looking for somebody who provides proper cover for Phillips. And I would suspect that that will be a younger option. As I say, I don't think there's any merit in signing. I know you you want your squad to be as strong as possible, but you can't sign a very high-quality defensive midfielder and say, look, look, in all all probability, you're not going to play because when Calvin's fit and he's on form, he's in the team. You know, he's he's almost the first pick. So you need to be kind of clever and, and cute with that. And I do wonder, again... I think there will be some attention paid to further up the pitch as well, your, your higher midfield areas, because it's that same scenario. And I know that injuries are biting, so there's no Rodrigo. And if Bielsa had been, uh, done what he normally does with players, I don't think he would have played Cleek um, on Sunday, played him in a, a scenario where quite clearly Cleek wasn't wasn't ready to, to play or wasn't able to go through, through 90 minutes. But, you know, there's a kind of broader discussion point there, which is that, a kind of half-fit or under-fit clique was preferred again to, to Pablo Hernandez in an area of the pitch where you might conceivably have played Hernandez. So they are, I think, going to have to address those positions, whether it's to bring in somebody who doubles up for clique or provides competition for clique, which I think would be the best way to go. You know, I think to try and find somebody in that sort of middle ground between the 8 and the 10 that Bielsa likes, I, I do think that overnight, if you got that right, would strengthen the squad pretty significantly. I think... Because Bielsa does seem to be leaning this season towards more of a 10 in there, you know, more of a Rodrigo and his, his first go-to player seems to be 
Tyler Roberts off the bench more often than not. Although we've always said Dallas in there as well. So it's been a, it's been a bit different recently because of the injuries. I think in, in that position, he's got Rodrigo. And I think he would like to think that Rodrigo can thrive there and can be a long-term option in behind Bamford. But two midfielders would make sense to me, really. Would one in the, the Phillips area, uh, one in the clique area, because those feel like the two positions, aside from left-back, and we've spoken about left-back so much, but those feel like the two positions that are under-resourced and where the kind of weight of responsibility on the players who are in there, i.e. Phillips and Cleek, is almost too much. And I wonder if we've maybe seen that slightly with Cleek's drop in form and, and now this hip injury, that it's like 100-odd games almost back-to-back he's played. And it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask. And I think as you go on and you want to get better as a team and, and you move into a higher level of competition, you, you do have to give a bit more thought to the strength of your squad. Regards to Hernandez, and if we are to assume that he does depart this uh, this summer, not used again, appears to be well down the pecking order. And then we're starting to get those vague booking uh, Instagram messages where, yeah, I don't know what you read into them. And for the benefit of anybody who's not seen this, he used a quote that Marcelo Bielsa, a famous quote addressed to, was it his Marseille dressing room yes. at one stage? And, and uh, Pablo's posted those with, well, what intention we can only speculate. Yeah, I mean, the, the quote itself was along the lines of, although it was impossible for you, never claim anything in life, swallow the poison of hatred and accept injustice is rest assured um, that everything in life is balanced in the end. I mean, who knows whether that's been posted with, with kind of pointed intent, but your players don't tend, especially in his position, don't tend to do that sort of thing or to, to tweet uh, Instagram like that without some purpose. I mean, again, it was actually the, I think the right decision to get um, Huggins on for a debut on Sunday. I thought he'd made a difference and I thought he had a, a very a very good game. Considering the circumstances, the way in which he was quickly up to speed and the way in which he didn't sink in, you know, it was a bit of a hospital pass at, at 4-0. It's not, you know, it's not a great scenario to, to be coming on. But I don't think you could argue that, that it, it impacted in a negative sense on the team. It just brings you back again to the, the realisation that Hernandez is, is no longer really a player that Bielsa seems inclined to reach for. And I don't mean that he's written him off completely yet, but I find it hard to imagine that Hernandez won't be going in the summer because I'm not sure what this is doing for anybody now. And, and as we said on previous podcast, it's he, he, very close to the end of his career. And it, he's never struck me as the sort of player who would want to lose his final year, his final 18 months to complete inactivity. I don't think there's anything in him for that. He's won promotion here, leads are back in the Premier League, but he isn't playing. So where's the you know, where's the draw? Where's the appeal? I don't imagine that he's training in a way which is ruling him out. You know, I don't think he's the, the type to kind of throw the towel in and, and down tools. But I, I, it's got to the stage now where you, you're almost not expecting Bielsa to go for him. You know, even in games where something different's needed and, and, and you know, a switch around is needed, both Harrison and, and Cleek taken off at half time at the Emirates, but it wasn't Hernandez that, that they went for. And, and as I was saying, if he does leave and if he does go, then again, it, it strengthens the argument for recruitment in midfield because it is just looking thin there. Do you put this all down to the way he was substituted against Leicester, was it, when he was taken off? Yeah. Or is it? Is there something more up by here? No, I don't. I don't think I do. I mean, clearly Bielsa was unhappy about that, and that that wasn't really much of a secret. Even even though Bielsa didn't go into it, and he wouldn't comment on you know what had been said or, or what he'd done. And I don't, you know, we, when we just discussed it at the time, I was saying that it wasn't kind of transmitted to 
Hernandez in a particularly clear way. He was just kind of dropped from the squad. And there were conversations after that. And obviously he's back again, you know, two assists against Newcastle. He's been back in the squad. He's been back in, in the mix. I just don't think Bielsa makes allowances ever for individual players or, or not to any great extent. And I think as well, because of his personality, I don't think Bielsa will feel like he's doing anything wrong here. And and you have to say that if you look at the results and the table, he isn't really doing anything wrong. I'm a huge fan of Fernandes and, and always have been, but I don't think you can play players in the Premier League out of sympathy or, or out of sentimentality. And Hernandez is fully entitled to think that he should be playing and, and he should be more involved. But Bielsa's head coach, Bielsa gets paid to do that job. And, and it, it's his call. And, and more often than not, or at least as often as not, because, you know, it's kind of 10 wins, 11 defeats or, or whatever it is now. He, he's he's getting it right in, in what is a new division in a, a higher level of competition. And I'm just not convinced. And, you know, this is just me talking in, in my opinion, but I'm not convinced that Bielsa sees the running in him anymore. I'm, I'm not convinced that he thinks um, Hernandez has got the sort of athleticism that you need. And, and again, you can be critical of Hernandez if that's the case, because he's he's at the age that he's at and he's at the stage of his career that he's at. But it just there's just that constant feeling of Bielsa moving in a direct, different direction and looking at others, looking at other players, players who perhaps fit in more with what he's doing. And as I say, I, a game like Sunday's where it's there to be turned and, and you're looking at who's coming off the bench, the, the bottom line is it's it's not Hernandez. Tyler Roberts back from the dead to an extent as well, because I think it's, it feels like only a, a month ago that we were saying he needed to go out on loan and get some games and maybe he wasn't going to fe- feature much, but he's he's made some good appearances recently. He has. So it was his assist for Costa's goal, and I don't think that goal did Costa any harm either. I mean, the first thing he did, just about after coming on the pitch was the mistake, lose the ball and Arsenal score their fourth. And I, I said on Twitter after that, he, he's badly out of form at the moment is Costa, you know, really, really in need of something that, that perks him up. And I actually thought he was better from there on and kind of my reverse jinx kicking in. Got that goal, again, a bit more of an impact off off the bench. I do feel like Roberts has been doing that for a, a few games now. I feel like he's he's been making a difference and he's been a, a kind of positive influence. But I still don't feel that you're seeing that sort of match-winning edge in him. Um, I've always felt that he's a player with talent, and I think Leeds have thought that as well. You know, that Bielsa obviously likes him and, and obviously rates him. But it's a big period this for him now because he's going to have 12 months left when they, they get to the summer. And I think if there are big decisions to be made and if Bielsa's staying, he's surely going to be one of them. I mean, at that stage, it's got to be new contract or you would think sell elsewhere because otherwise you're, you're risking losing him for, for very little a little bit further down the line but yeah he is making a difference and I think he has to at the moment because when you pick through that bench huge number of players on it or, or vast majority of players with next to no Premier League experience a lot of them with next to no first team experience either so in fairness to Bielsa at the moment he is going to places like Arsenal with pretty much the bare bones you know there is absolutely no fat on this squad at all and, and it is making it dif- difficult but yeah you're right about Roberts I don't disagree that, that he's been better recently I think you've hit upon something there that you know despite the result on Sunday there were plenty of positive things to still take out of that game despite being 4-0 down at one point and that's that we gave ourselves a fighting chance even at 4-0 down people seem to be focusing on the big picture and understand that like Strauk for example is a He's a young player. Uh, it wasn't great on Sunday, but nobody's pointing the finger at him. Everybody you know, seems to understand he's going to take time to develop. He's naturally a centre-back. And just overall, generally, nobody's panicking about that result because we've done a lot of good work in the first half of the season to get us to a point now where we're 
all but safe. So it's a refreshing change from the sort of anxiety and tension that we've had over the last couple of years, which was uh, a point we made last week. Well, I think I would enjoy, or I would suggest that people should enjoy the ability to be able to debate this stuff rationally. You know, if, if Leeds were down in the position that Fulham are in or West Brom, and they were going to Arsenal and, and losing like that, and there was the debate over the fact that there didn't seem to be any cover for Phillips, and and that you know there hasn't really been any like for like cover for Phillips for the you know the duration of, of Bielsa's time as head coach, and and I think it hasn't been helped by the fact that you've got Forshaw in the background who has kind of been almost fit and almost fit and almost fit for you know nigh on two years now. It's been constant. Constant thought in Bielsa's head that at some stage Forsha may be back and he, and he just never has been. And at this stage, you know, still not in the 23s. So who knows when when that's going to that's gonna come. But you're, you're able to discuss this stuff without it having to be bitter and twisted. You know, you're able to debate that on Sunday and, you know, just look rationally and sensibly at what's there with the squad, what maybe needs to happen with the squad, what could change if, as Leeds say, they want to. They're, they're going to carry on on this trajectory. You know, if, if it is going to be a, a continuous upward rise, things have to kind of change constantly and, and and everything has to evolve. And that, to my mind, that is one of the things that, that does need to be addressed. But somebody said to me on Twitter, oh, it's, it's criminal that they've, they've never done anything about this with Phillips. And, you know, I sort of said to him, well, criminal equals promotion last season and then 10th before kickoff of the weekend anyway in the Premier League. So that doesn't really stand up to... To scrutiny, I think what's fair to say is that they didn't need to do anything in January in that position. But come round to the next window in the summer, I think they do need to look at that. And I think there are other positions that they need to address as well if they are going to get better as a, as a team and as a squad. One of the crucial things about that window is, and because of what we've done in the first half of the season, is we can look forward to it with a degree of excitement. We're not going into it absolutely tearing our hair out, thinking, well, we need to sign this. We need a number eight. We need a number four. You know, we can take the time to look forward to the players that hopefully we're going to bring in to address those problems because I think there's a general level of trust about the direction that the club's going, particularly with transfers. You know, the recruitment's been good. I think um, Rafinha puts Victor Orta in even more credit. So, yeah, we can afford to look forward to the summer now with a, with a degree of anticipation, surely. Absolutely. And you should never be in a position where you feel that in a, an individual window you need to sign seven, eight, nine players. It's, it's almost impossible to do financially, you know, to balance the, the amount of money that needs to be spent with the quality of player that you need to recruit. I think what you want to be seeing is the I don't know whether you can, you know, feasibly expect Leeds to spend hundred million pounds every summer. But if they are if the outlay is large, what you want to see is them targeting two, three, four players so that you are addressing the odd position as opposed to the whole team. You want the team in the spine of it in the main to stay together and you know it, it will have to change over time because teams always do but avoid getting into a window where you genuinely have doubts about multiple positions that leave you under extreme pressure the more you're able to target individual signings and to do it with a bit of time um, and a bit of concerted effort the better the likely to be and I still think last the last summer window was a good window I still feel that the four big signings Rodrigo, Llorente, Koch and Rafinha I still think they are fundamentally good footballers and, and are fundamentally Premier League footballers. I think there's got to be that little concern over Llorente's fitness given what's happened to him. But um, still a Spain international and I still think in the main it was money thrown at the right areas. And final thing in this section then, one to watch from last week was the London hoodoo. You asked, will it end? No, Phil. No, it won't. Is it ever going to end? It becomes more difficult as well now you get into this league, doesn't it? Because most of your London trips are Arsenal or Tottenham or or Chelsea. Don't forget Man United. Don't forget Man United as well. 
Oh, that as well. Yes, yeah, of course, of course. Um, I mean, Fulham has to be the one, doesn't it? Like that. I mean, that that has got to be the point at which this ends. Uh, you, you kind of feel that if they go to Fulham and they can't end that this time round, it's going to be there for a, a little while longer. As I say, I, someone said to me beforehand, I think the reason for the, the London hoodoo is that a lot of the grounds you go to, like Brentford before they move stadium, Fulham and QPR and everything, Millwall, Charlton, it's, it's all quite tight and, and everything else, but stadiums don't get too much more expansive than than the Emirates. And 4-0 down after 50 minutes suggests that it's just one of these weird things that is is here to stay until Leeds finally kill it. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. The Champions League returned this week. We're not quite in it yet. Give it an, what, another season or two. Easy peasy. However, it is 20 years ago this week. We were in the middle of two games against Anderlecht in the second group stage of the Champions League. Um, and we beat the Belgians 2-1 at Ellen Road, you'll remember. And I forgot how tight this game was, actually, because everyone remembers the away leg, the 4-1. Uh, but we fell behind on 65, but then turned it around in the uh, in the final quarter of the game with uh, Hart scored, and then Bowie scored three minutes from time, which was good. But then we went to Brussels, of course, and produced one of the great European performances. 4-1, as I mentioned, and it was inflicting, I think, Anderlecht's first ever home European defeat. And what a time it was. It was absolutely amazing. People forget that Anderlecht were good as well. I mean, these days, the English, well, third place team beating Anderlecht would be kind of par for the course, wouldn't it? But they had a great record at that point. And we were, well, we were new to the Champions League, weren't we? We were going to be in it, obviously, every season after this, we thought. But this was our first go yeah, at it. And- that's, that's the thing, is that I was at the stage of life where I was, what, at that point, 22. So I didn't have the you know perspective to appreciate that it was maybe a lightning in a bottle thing and I should savour it because like you, I was like, ah, this is the start of the Leeds United dynasty. This is great. Every year we'll be breaking the British transfer record and playing in the Champions League. My ridiculous levels of arrogance. I mean, I was at sixth form at this point and I was applying for universities and I was thinking, well, I've really got to be within an easy trip of Ellen Road because this is just the start of it. Probably going to be, if I if I go away now, I'm going to miss us winning the title, FA Cups, Champions League. That's going to be every single season. So I ended up going to York, which is a nice city and everything, good university and all that. But I essentially chose it because I wanted to be within um, about 40 minutes of Ellen Road. And by the time I left university, we were in the championship, which was a, a great choice. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 but you got your pre-season friendlies at Bootham Crescent, which we just have been around the corner. So every cloud, I suppose. It's such a weird story, the Champions League one, because you had this team who careered into it for the first time, obviously they've been in the European Cup um, under Wilkinson the season after the title, but appeared in the Champions League, just about won it, and then were never seen again in it. And it's it, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, I, I was picking back through the whole tournament um, this morning before we, before we did this, because I had it in my head that not only was it a great run in general, but it was done 
pretty much against the odds considering who they were, you know, who they were drawn against. So the first group stage, and bear in mind that there were two group stages to this, AC Milan, Barcelona and Besiktas. Second group stage, Real Madrid, Anderlecht and Lazio. And then obviously it gets into the knockouts and it's Deportivo, who who back then were a really, really competent um, Champions League side. Then Valencia in the semi-finals, and, and had they got through past Valencia, it would have been Bayern Munich. I mean, it was unbelievable run. And also, I mean, I, I interviewed Steve McPhail during the lockdown and we were talking about this run. And he said the thing that always stands out for him is that they wound up in the semi-finals having been absolutely annihilated by Barcelona at the new Camp in the, the very first group game. And he tells the story of, of them going down the tunnel and before kickoff, going down for them um, for warm-up. And then passing a chapel, which is well, it is or was in the in the stadium. I don't know if it's still there. Yeah, I've, I've, Gary, I've, Gil- uh, I've been on the tour. I've seen that chapel. Yes, it's just off the oh, tunnel. Well, well, there you go. Yeah. So so he said Gary Kelly was with them, and, and he said Gary, being a good Catholic lad, you know, said let's go in and say a prayer. So they did, and it was a bit tongue in cheek, but you know how it was. And McPhail joked that after they'd you know after the game and they'd been battered by Barcelona, they were coming back down. He said, Kelly walked past him and went past the chapel and, and just said to him, well, that didn't work, did it? <laughs> um, but the, for me, the, the moment that stands out more than anything in that is the, the Dida era at Ellen Road because it felt as that was the immediate game after AC Milan there. And it was heading for nil-nil that. I, I remember the weather being absolutely appalling. I was watching on the telly. The weather was horrific. And him dropping that into the net in the, the tamest manner you've ever seen just seemed to spark everything. I mean, Besiktas came the following week and Leeds put six past them. And from there, they just felt, they felt a bit like Teflon. They felt a bit invincible. It was like anywhere they, they went to or or anyone they had to play, anyone they mixed with, even the group with Madrid and, and Lazio, they were able to get them themselves out of. And I think because they got got to the semi-finals, you automatically assume, well, it must have been an impressive campaign. But I think when you actually look at the nuts and bolts of it, it's even more extraordinary that they got anywhere near to winning it. I mean, that Barcelona game, I remember watching that. And I know we had a, a weak inside and that Radebe ended up getting stretched off, didn't he, with his blooming neck in a brace and, um, and all the rest of it. But just watching that and thinking, oh, well, fun to have a go. Yeah, we've had a go at it. Nice little few games in the Champions League. It was a fun experience and we'll just, we'll remember this and hopefully one day we might be good enough to compete in something like this. And then like you say, just suddenly fast forwards another week and that AC, I mean, that AC Milan game, God, it it still puts the hairs on the back of my neck up now thinking about it and the the, the weather contributed to it because it was absolutely soaked. It's, it's the lights at Ellen Road and the atmosphere was just sensational. But that moment, will definitely stay with me forever because half the ground didn't really know it had gone in at first. But it was one of those you don't watch all the way because you see it, the sort of shot it is, and you're like, well, okay, it's a, it's a shot to nothing. He's just going to catch this. And it's watching it back, it's one of those that you still can't quite believe it's gone in because there was so much had to go wrong for it. Even if he'd have just dropped it in front of himself or if it had hit his body and bounced off, it'd have been fine because it just splatted on the wet surface and he could have gathered it. But the combination of everything going so wrong for him was just... And the fact he's still kind of clawing at it as it's going into the net is just lovely to see. Yeah, and the the raw, that, that slightly delayed raw was the thing for me when people realised, and because it was, oh, it was just, what a perfect moment. And for anybody who's too young to to have experienced it, it's one of those life-defining moments, isn't it? It feels like it had to be Bowie as well scoring that goal because that was just the sort of player he was somehow. He seemed to always get us, drag us out of things in the last minute, did Bowie, and that it was so scruffy and against the odds, it did feel like just a, quintessential Lee Bowyer goal 
I, I shouldn't compare the two, but in, when it comes to goalkeeping, oh, what Michael said there about a shot going in that you think, oh, well, never mind. It reminded me a bit of um, the McCormack goal that seemed to save Grayson's job for a while at home to Burnley, where Lee Grant, it felt as if he had about five or six opportunities to gather what was a pretty tame shot anyway, and, and it just kept slipping from his gloves. And in the end, by the time McCormack scored, the ball was about two centimetres away from, from the goal line. And I mean, it was wet on the night, but it was such a simple one for for Dida. But to be fair to the players, McPhail was saying that when they came in after the, the Barcelona game, they sat in the dressing room and it was obviously a bit quiet and a bit shell-shocked, but they sort of started to say to themselves, look, this can't be it. Like, you know, we, we can't get into the Champions League and get smashed around, you know, for a few games and finish bottom of the group and, and go out. We've got to do better than this and we've, and we've got to, to to play better than this. And, and the thing about the, the game against AC Milan was that they were right in it. Although it was a really tame goal at the end, you know, it was really even game, as I recall. And, and it would be, pushing it to say that that Leeds didn't deserve something from it. Um, and there was a huge difference between what had gone on in Barcelona and, and what, what what went on at Ellen Road. And it did just seem to flick a switch, you know, individually with players like Boyer and, and so on. But also as a team, they just seemed to suddenly realise that actually they were nowhere near as bad as they had been in Spain. It felt like as well that game we'd not done ourselves justice because we knew we could play in Europe because we'd the season before, we'd obviously got to the semis of the UEFA Cup, which was a, considered a better competition then as well. It wasn't quite the the annoying distraction that people seem to view it as these days. It was it was a legitimate competition, and it feels like it felt like we'd been not robbed as such by circumstances in Istanbul, but it had, it had definitely set us back, and it had maybe meant we hadn't quite achieved as much as we could have done that season. So progressing to the Champions League felt like something we could do and should have been capable of, and then the Barcelona game was a bit of a reality check, but then. As you said, from that point on, we, we pretty much took it all in our stride. I mean, if you look at the lineups as well of that first Barcelona game, look at some of the names in that Barcelona lineup De Boer, Sergi, Simao, Gerard, Koku, Manuel Petit was there, Overmars, Clivert, Rivaldo, even De La Pena. It's absolutely ridiculous. Just absolutely ridiculous that the bench and the, and the starting 11, like Michael Reitziger on the bench for them. But they, but it's, just, it's just wild. They say, well, they, but, then, but then move on to Real Madrid and you've got Casillas, you've got Roberto Carlos, Hierro. Um, you've got Raul McManaman at a time where, where he was still doing well for them. Luis Figo, Makaleli. And, you know, it, it was like that all the way through. It, it felt as if Besiktas was kind of the, the slight breather, which is why Leeds put six past them. But everywhere else, you know, everywhere else they went. You know, at Lazio, you were talking about Crespo and Salas and Nesta at the back. Um, Nedved was in that side as well. I'm sure Simeone played at that point and, and in, certainly in the game over in, in Rome. So it it was it was like hitting the the cream of of Europe, and it's amazing how how well they coped. And it it, it really felt to me. I mean, I don't know if either of you were lucky enough to go to the Deportivo home tie in the quarterfinals, but I mean, I, I remember that being one of only two occasions when anybody at the Evening Post had um had got a ten out of ten, and that was Ferdinand on the night. I did give McCormack one further down the line for those four goals at, at Charlton, but. I mean, it was totally, totally flawless um, in the main that Deportivo game. Did either of you go to it? I think we both did. Yeah, yeah. I went to I went to all of the home games and yeah. one of the away games. But got to the uh, got to the Bernabeu to watch that one as well. It was my only oh, my wow. only ever Leeds United trip in Europe. I will I will say this about the home leg of that. I think I had one of those kind of transcendental moments when you uh, hear the Champions League theme playing over the PA system in Elm Road. I was like, this is this is insane. I mean, this is the Champions League theme that I've only ever seen on the telly against 
the Real Madrid, and it was the proper Galacticos, kind of Harlem Globetrotters side, that wasn't it, as you listed some of the names there, Phil. And I thought, God, we're playing against them. This is amazing. It's like watching a TV programme, which of course it was, but to be then be part of it and be in the, in the stadium for that was, was sensational. And yeah, against Deportivo, I mean, I think we've watched... Have we watched the Deportivo game for the extra ball? One of our, have, our have we not? I know I've, I've watched it all back or even the, the extended highlights because I think they're knocking around somewhere, maybe on YouTube. And we absolutely blew them away that night. It's just it's just like a tour de force, that match. And before the game, their manager had said that they'd drawn the weakest team left yeah, in the yeah. competition. 3-0 to right. the weakest team. There was yeah. all of that stuff going on. And I have to say, I mean, I know it's, it's kind of written out of Leeds United history to an extent now, but Rio Ferdinand in this period was unbelievable oh, he was incredible wasn't he yeah. he was so good he was every bit the 18 million pounds we paid for him and I know we'd go on to spend an awful lot of money on players that weren't worth what we paid for them but Rio Ferdinand never for a second did it look like we'd been we'd been done on that well maybe his debut aside I think when we lost at Leicester but he was just an absolute Rolls Royce of a footballer at this point and, and got worse I think when he went to Man United everyone agrees definitely yeah didn't win anything either um, so we'll have, we'll have regretted that I remember chatting to to Don Matteo about that game and, and him, you know, all those, those two legs and, and him saying how you suddenly felt as if it was it was really, really coming together. They knew they'd done well and they knew they'd, they'd been competitive all through it, but destroying Deportivo like that and, and almost putting yourself, I know it, it got a bit tense in, in the, the second leg, but almost putting yourself in the semi-final at a stroke, you know, with, without, I wouldn't say without breaking sweat, that wouldn't be fair because they were, they were sensational on the night, but Without missing a step, you know that there was that little, that, I guess that dare to dream moment of could we could we actually win this? And and I think everybody agrees that the the ban for Lee Boyer um, in the semi final after the first leg was just a, a critical critical moment. And uh, you know it's not the same as saying that Leeds would have won away at Valencia because Valencia, like Deportivo, really accomplished side at that level, but it did just seem to suck the sting out of them. You know, it, it was the timing of it, the way it was done. Um, the changes that Aliri made and the impact that it had on the squad and the, the starting lineup, it almost just burst the bubble. And it's it's kind of sad the way it ended because it it all went out with a bit of a whimper in Valencia in the game where you you still felt like Leeds had such a chance. You dropped the famous uh, D bomb there, didn't you? Dare to dream. That's the other question that's attached to the Champions League era. Is it tainted as a memory because of what followed and the fact that we knew that? all the foundations were ultimately built on on sand, the whole Ridsdale excess and so on. I mean, do, does it take away the merit of some of these memories? I don't think so. I suppose to put it another way, and I know I bang on about hearts constantly, but when we beat Hibs in 2012, the Scottish go. Cup final, that was, yeah, just um, <laughs> just get your, get your sleeping bags out. I'll, um, I'll wake you up when I'm finished. Um, Within a couple of years, hearts were in administration and, and solvent, and the, you know, the running of the club was was totally inept. But in no way do I look back at that final and think, do you know what? I wish we hadn't had that if we'd been slightly better managed. I would have traded that final for just better management because that's what you kind of live for, isn't it? And I think, I mean, Rich Sutcliffe, who works with me at The Athletic and used to be on the Oxford Post, he, he went home and away through all of this. And he said, it was like going on a stag do every fortnight. You know, it was like, or, or once a month you were going to Madrid or you're going to Barcelona or you're going to Rome or... or Milan or, or whatever else, and you never you never lose those memories. I think I think it's tainted in the 
or, or at least it's part of the kind of tainted element of the story of the history of Leeds because it's what everybody refers to and it's what everybody links back to when you think about the excesses on the Ridsdale and, and the damage that it did. But I don't think it takes away from the fact, like Decor said when I went and interviewed him, he, he was saying, everybody remembers that team. I know we didn't win anything, but everybody remembers that Leeds team and that is the mark of a you know a really, really good side, really great side. And I don't know, I mean, you tell me, does it does it taint it? I don't think it should. I certainly won't want to take any of it away. There were great times, and as we've said, it's kind of a, it is the time of your life as well that you're at when these things are happening. But I remember being at sixth form, and like my form teacher, blessing was a, a big Leeds fan. He was a season ticket holder, so when I went away to watch us in Madrid, he put it down as a religious holiday, which I remember was was very good of him. So I didn't get marked as absent for a couple of days. That's incredible. And I'd missed the Besiktas game. I remember that one as well because that was on the same um, the same day. I was meant to be on a politics trip to the Houses of Parliament, which I pulled out of at the last minute because I was like nah I've got, go, I've got to go to the Champions League game and the, I was like the teacher was like well you're going to you're going to regret that and then the next day I was like nah fair enough <laughs> ah, brilliant. You, probably, you probably did right and I think that maybe sums that, it up I, I should probably have gone to the House of Parliament but you know what 6-0 Besiktas was a yeah. lot more fun I mean I think regards to the way that Ridsdale spoke about it and he phrased it about daring to dream and it really annoyed a lot of people at the time putting all that to one side football is about moments I mean, they're the things that you remember, like you'll, you'll take with you into the future. And that's one thing you learn as you as you get older is that you cling on to those important moments and that they're the things that make you smile when you look back on them. So on that basis, I, I don't regret it. And I think now with Bielsa, I think the current regime and Bielsa has to a certain extent exercised the ghosts of, of the Champions League and the whole dare to dream idea because I don't think we get Bielsa now without the whole mess of the last decade and a half, which was precipitated by the spending chasing the Champions League dream. So in a way, I think it's probably been worth it. Sort of, just oh, about. Nearly. I do regret not winning it. I think that would have been the thing that you could always look back at then. If, if we'd have actually gone and won the Champions League that year and whatever happened after that point, I feel almost having won a European Cup, you feel a little bit untouchable. And again, go back. that, that exercises the ghost of 75 to an extent as well. And it, I guess the, uh, Wigan fans would be the ones to speak to about this who've had their day winning winning a big trophy and now they're still in administration still trying to find a buyer like languishing down the in the bottom of the leagues these days but I'm sure none of them think I'd rather we just stayed in the Premier League and not won that we could have been stable and finishing 17th every year I think at some point you've got to you've got to try and win something haven't you and there is an element of risk attached to that that's what it's about yeah yeah hey speaking of Wigan I know um you've done a bit on Gelhart and Greenwood this week haven't you Phil and that's um, right yeah yeah because we were talking about the Champions League and I was pulling out the fixtures and the dates and stuff I thought were either of them alive when this um, when this happened? And no, they weren't. Gelhart was born on the 4th of May, 2002, and Greenwood, the 26th of January, 2002. So just before him, he's slightly older, which is absolutely depressing. Not If, if you're under at the age of about 25, uh, you'll be laughing at these old fogies now. But let me tell you, you'll get there one day. I find it weird to think now that me talking to someone, to a kid at a Leeds game about the Champions League is the same as me as a kid someone speaking to me about Don Reavy when I first started going to games. Yeah. Because I'm not that old. <laughs> I, I've given I've given up on all that, though. I'm pretty sure that when Paddy Kenny left the club, that was the last point at which there was a player in the squad who was older than me. So I've made peace with the fact that I'm so much old. I mean, it's like kid who came off the bench for Barcelona last night. You're looking at him and thinking, when I take my daughter's down to school. I see some kids in the playground who look older than you and it's a primary school. <laughs> you know, and, it's a rough you, area you live in. You've just got to, uh, you've just got to, right, well, they've maybe got 
stubble like me. I was growing stubble when I was about six. Um, but you, you've just got to face up to the fact that um, we're all aging rapidly and there's there's nothing we can do. I was just going to say, I love the story about the religious holiday. It reminded me of our secondary school in Pennycook. There was um, a head teacher there who used to like to skive on uh, Wednesday afternoons and go and play golf at the golf course down the road. And he turned up one Wednesday afternoon and there was one of the lads from school had gone along and decided he was going to give Wednesday afternoon a miss as well. And the head teacher said to him, you're supposed to be in school. And the people said to him, yeah, so are you. Um, so they agreed that they'd have a round of golf and nobody would say anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> and those, those are, without a doubt, the best teachers in life. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Back in action on Friday, then Phil, Wolves away. They feel like a different Wolves to the one that we faced earlier in the season. Things um, stagnated a little bit for them, do you think? Possibly. Yeah, that might might be fair to say. They've, they've had a good run of Wolves and they've had a, a very good run under Nuno and they're still, I think, a, a good team, good good squad. I wonder if there's more to it than, than football. I was asking Bielsa about this a couple of weeks back because our Wolves writer, Tim Spears, did a really good piece last month about the fact that Nuno isn't enjoying this season. And I don't mean just because of the results, and that won't be helping. But he's finding the absence of crowds difficult. He's away from his family, so he's barely able to see them at all. And you know what it's like in football. You, you don't get much time at anyway, particularly not as a manager. So I think he feels very detached from that. And clearly things aren't going as well for the team as they have done previously. And I was asking Bielsa, you know, can, can you kind of relate to that? You know, because obviously... Bielsa's family have been in Argentina, long way away. It's almost impossible or extremely difficult to travel at all. And Bielsa, like Nuno, is tied in by this really intense schedule and, and his own intense training regime and, and everything else. And then he said, I, you know, I, I do sympathise with what he's saying. I totally understand where he's coming from. The, the point Bielsa was trying to make was that he didn't want to complain about it because in his position and with his wealth and everything else, you know, he's he feels that he's far better positioned to cope with it than a lot of other people in general. But yeah, it, it feels as if the kind of magic's gone out of, or the, I mean, I don't know about the passion, that probably wouldn't be fair, but magic's gone out of Nuno slightly and it seems to have gotten out of his team slightly. And it does feel, it, there will be more to it than this, but it does feel like it is slightly COVID related, I would say. To Leeds then and what we're looking at injury wise, Phillips, please say Phillips is back. And we'll find out. We're still here from Bielsa this week. I suspect it'll probably be touch and go again. But given that, you know, as of last Friday, Bielsa was still saying that it, it was possible he'd feature at Arsenal, you'd, you'd hope he'd have a chance. And Phillips does seem to be one of these players who's pretty good at getting through injuries quickly and pretty good at coping with them, even if it's it's still niggling slightly. 
I think as big a question mark will be over Cleek this weekend, given that he, he had that hip injury against Arsenal and he, and he played for 45 minutes, but was off after 45 minutes as well. It will be, I would imagine that, you know, that could well be doubtful. And then, of course, you've got, you know, the the existing list, which is Paveda and Rodrigo and Llorente and, and Robin Cock. And it is a it is a problem and it is, you know, it is a handful for, for Bielsa. And I, I find it interesting that he's complained. I know he never complains about injuries, but he hasn't complained at all this season. And, he, you know, he, he hasn't really got into the argument about are the players being looked after properly in terms of scheduling. You know, I, I, you've had a lot of noise from Klopp at Liverpool um, in particular about, you know, the number of substitutes that teams should have. There's been a lot of chuntering as well about the, the kind of intensity of the fixture list now that the season's shortened and it's and, and everything is a is a bit of a mess. But looking through the fixture list, and our, our guy Tom Wovel keeps um, tabs on it really closely, he tweets quite regularly, you know, the, the kind of um, treatment room um, at each club. And Leeds have got it as bad as anybody else. But it's in no way has Bielsa got anything close to a full-strength squad. And I think that, combined with the way they, they played, does really make you respect what they've done so far this season and, and where they are in, in the league. Because I know he doesn't worry too much about continuity. He always thinks that players can adapt and players should be versatile and that one player in his squad is as good as another. But the fact is, if you could have your strongest to live in every week, then you would. And and he probably more than anybody, because he, he doesn't do much in the way of squad rotation. So he is handicapped to that degree. I think Phillips being back um, for this game would, would definitely make a big difference. I'm not so sure that the injuries have impacted Leeds as bad as Liverpool, because if you listen to some of their fans, they would say that injuries and a lack of crowd have affected them more than any other club ever to be in existence. And VAR. Yes, yeah, of course, yes. Liverpool, yeah. That's been very detrimental to them, and as well as some other things, probably. Well, like Alisson running out and colliding with his, his centre-back in front of him. They have had injuries and they've had injuries in, in key positions. And I suppose it's all relative, isn't it? The injuries that they've had at Liverpool have contributed to them getting knocked out of the race for the title in the way that injuries could quite easily have knocked Leeds down into a bit of a bit of a relegation battle. But I think, and this is not a comment about Klopp because I don't follow what Klopp does at Liverpool anywhere near as closely as I do Bielsa at Leeds. But I think... Again, we've seen the benefit of Bielsa coaching the squad en masse and coaching individuals to be ready to jump in, like Huggins on Sunday. You know, you do not just magic a 23 off the bench and get them to play like that from nowhere. You know, he's obviously been schooled and drilled in what Leeds do so that when he was thrown on, and, and in his wrong position, by the way, I mean, he wasn't even in, in his, his what I understand to be his, his preferred position, he was really impressive. And that comes back to the fact that Bielsa doesn't want to have a kind of established hierarchy. Don't get me wrong, some players are always going to play before others, like Phillips, for example, because that's just the way football works. But he doesn't want a hierarchy where, in his head, these 13, 14, 15 players are good enough. And if some of them drop out, then he's in trouble because he doesn't really like or doesn't really trust what's behind them. And I think if you have a manager who thinks like that, that attitude and, and that mood kind of transmits to the other players in the squad. You kind of sense the, the lack of faith and the lack of, of confidence that, that a manager has in them. So it's been beneficial yet again. Um, and, it, and it is helping them to ride out this period where they do have a lot of absentees. Despite all that, how do we feel about it? Again, I feel okay about this, even though we're off the back of a what could have been a heavy defeat against Arsenal, but looked a little bit better in the end because we clawed a couple back. I, I feel quite positive. I think for consistency's sake, I should probably say that I said yesterday we were going to win, and I regret that now. But we will, maybe, possibly. I think I, I think we're due a scraped one nil, 
after the free-flowing goals of, of the Arsenal game. Just a nice regulation 1-0 win with no dramas would be nice. Decent performance from Melier as well just to get him back on track. I still look back at the first game between the two sides and think that Leeds were pretty unlucky on the night, or at least if not unlucky, that they, they did things on, on the night that, that played into Bulls' hands. I mean, I, I was looking afterwards going through the game and the number of good wide positions they, they got into and the number of, actually the number of good positions that Bamford took up in the box only for the cross to go nowhere near him or the cross to hit the first man or to, to basically come to nothing meant that Wolves weren't coming under anywhere near enough pressure in and around the, their own box. And, you know, defence, I, I think that Nuno would have seen that as a really good away performance, that they were tight, they, they had the, the low block, they, they defended defended well until the second half when they started to expand it a bit and actually started to look dangerous. And I think we probably all felt on the balance of play that they'd just about edged it. I think it, I think they were you know, away from home and given that they'd set up with the tactics deliberately in, in the way that they did, I, I think they were they were worth that. But there was enough in the game to make you think that if Leeds go to Molyneux and play well, they should should get something there. And I still go back to the Arsenal game. I, I still don't think it was wrong to be confident about that fixture. I, I, you just don't want to anticipate that Leeds are going to be as passive and as, as flimsy as they were to, to begin with. They definitely can't do that against Wolves because Wolves have got players who, who will do the same to them as Arsenal did. But um, I think, yeah, I, I, I do feel confident enough about this. I think that there should be something in it for Leeds. I think Dan touched on it earlier, but it feels like for the first time in a few years, Wolves have lost momentum all of a sudden and they're, they're in an awkward period of consolidation almost where they're not, it looks like they're not going to push the, for Europe this season, but they're not going to go down and it's it feels a bit flat there. I think as well, they've, they've lost Jimenez up front, obviously, to the, the fractured skull that, that he suffered before Christmas. And he's a really big player for them and a really important player. And, you know, I was saying a moment ago that that shouldn't knock you out of your strike completely, but it definitely doesn't help. And as, as well, I mean, the decision to sell Jota to Liverpool, I found pretty fascinating because it was accepted with really good grace at Wolves. People seem to agree that he didn't fit, that he wasn't quite right, you know, that Nuno's system wasn't really made for him. And that actually it wasn't a particularly big deal that the Wolves were going to sell him and they were going to pull in this huge this huge fee. And then obviously Jota has, has gone to Liverpool and okay, he's had injuries over there. But I mean, was just scoring at a rate of knots, you know, going through periods where it felt like every game the, the goals were coming from from him. And I don't know whether you'd say that the, it would be wrong to say they're going through a rebuild Wolves because they, they definitely aren't. But I think they need to find, when they get around to the next window, they need an injection of something that just lets them regain their impetus. Like Michael says, they've, they've kind of hit a wall slightly and, and they're not looking now like one of the more dangerous sides in the Premier League, which they certainly had done for a, a couple of years. There's obviously something missing there or something that isn't quite right and, and they definitely, definitely need to address that. But they're two points behind Leeds. They definitely won't go down. They'll they'll be, they'll be fine. But I, I don't, you know, whereas they've been kind of knocking on the door for Europe, um, under Nuno. Um, I don't see that happening at all this season. It's like they haven't quite moved into the next phase of their development, whatever that is, whatever yeah. direction they're taking it. It's just like they don't quite know what it is yet and they're trying to figure that out or see which personnel fit. No, it'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm interested to see, much like we benchmarked Leeds' progress over the course of the season with the two games against Leicester, how we fare in this one in terms of the first game, because it felt like you know one of the one of the tags that was getting bandied around at Leeds in the first half of the season was that we we were naive, and to a certain extent, it feels like we we're not as naive now. It feels like we've made a bit of progress. Would you agree with that? Have we learned? Have we grown? Have we evolved since that that first Wolves game? 
I think so. I think the, the naive moments are still going to creep in from time to time. And there was definitely some of that at Arsenal. And, you know, I, I repeat myself slightly here. that I think in a year's time, to be 4-0 down at Arsenal will cause a lot more angst and frustration than, than it is this season. Because this season is about acclimatising and, and Leeds have done that really well. I mean, just to touch on what you were saying at the, the start there, Wolves are quite instructive for Leeds in that them trying to take the next step, it kind of means going beyond the Europa League places and, and a little bit higher if you can, or, or at the very least, being really comfortable in a Europa League position. And that, I think, is still in the Premier League the hardest boundary to cross. I think it's possible, you know, very possible for sides to suddenly click and, and to get themselves into contention for, you know, top six finish, top seven finish, like it like it has done for West Ham this season. You know, they really have come from, from nowhere. And Wolves were sat in that position. But once you're there, elevating yourself to that higher level, i.e., you know, kind of borderline Champions League qualification, is really difficult. And it takes a lot of expenditure and it takes a lot of skill and good judgment in the transfer market. And and maybe they have just gone a bit flat and a bit stale. I'd still like to think that it'll work out again for Nuno because I like him as a coach and, and I think he's done really good things with, with the team there. But it, it certainly feels to me that Leeds and Bielsa are enjoying this season a hell of a lot more than, than Nuno and Wolves. There doesn't seem to be a lot of joy down there. So are you picking out what the wide areas as, as maybe you want to watch this week because um, it's the area where we could maybe hurt them more that we didn't in the first game? Yeah, but do you know what? Not not only for Leeds. I'd have a I keep an eye on what Nuno does. He he tends to go three at the back, and in the last couple of games, he's been been setting up with a, a bit of a three four three. It certainly did against Southampton in the last game. But what was interesting against Southampton was that at half time he he swapped his two wide forwards, Neto and um, Adama Traore, because it wasn't really working, and and that did seem to make a, a big difference in the second half against Southampton. So, yeah, without a doubt, Rafinha and Harrison need to lead the charge for Leeds and need to do damage going forward. But keep an eye on Nuno's wide players as well, because I think width is where he'll be hoping that Wolves can possibly get at Leeds. And a couple of fixtures coming up as well, where Leeds should hopefully pick up some points. We've got Southampton, who are on a terrible losing streak at the minute in another week's time, followed by Villa at home. You know, some points to be obtained there, hopefully. Yeah, I think so. And this is the, I mean, I, I don't know whether anybody really feels, obviously a good win for Fulham away at Everton, but in spite of that, I, I'm not aware of any chat about relegation at all anymore. It seems to it seems to just faded off the agenda completely. But I think once you start creeping up to, to 40 points, that, that's the point at which you, you can really kind of strike out in the, the games that are left and, and see how far you could get. And I still like to think that, that Leeds can get themselves beyond 50 points, regardless of what that leads to and whether it, you know, I don't think this team are going to be good enough to, to seriously challenge for a, a European place. But they're on course to, to get over 50 points this season. I think that'd be a big achievement. You know, I think it would it would go down as a really, really good year if that happened. And I think as well, when it came to recruiting next summer or this summer coming, they're already on solid ground with Bielsa and the performance in general and the organisation and the, the profile of the club. But I think if you're throwing offers to people from a position of strength in the table as well, it, it's bound to make a difference. Just returning to the transfers, actually, in the in the summer window. I know we mentioned it at the top of the show, but I am curious to find out. Do you have a sense of how much progress the club have made on transfers for the summer window? Because, you know, when we've spoken to Angus before, we've heard him say, that, you know, they're always planning sort of, you know, two, maybe even three windows ahead at any given time. So do you think they'll have a, a firm idea, obviously on targets, but do you think they'll be down the line with some of those targets? 
They'll certainly try to be. I mean, whenever we we asked about transfers last month and and we knew that nothing was planned and nothing was going to happen, but the conversation was always more about what Victor Otter was trying to do for the summer rather than January. It was a good opportunity to get a few ducks in a row and good opportunity to to look at at, at what potentially they could do and and the sort of figures involved and, and everything else. The issue you have is that you're never quite sure when you get to the window itself who's going to bid for who or exactly how things are going to go. So they'd done a fair amount of legwork with Ben White prior to the end of last season. They'd figured out what they were going to offer. They'd, you know, they were obviously clear on how much money he was earning. They, they were aware of the fact that White would have been very keen on a move if Brighton had been willing to, to let him go. So they got involved in that, but obviously hit a brick wall and, and weren't able to get past the phone really with Brighton. Brighton just were not, you know, would, would not engage in that at all. But then, of course, they, they were already set up with Robin Koch, so they were able to fall back on that. And I think that's that's how Otto likes to work if he can. You know, we were talking about um, Romain Perraud over at, at Stad Brest, left-back that they're, they're really, really keen on. You, you want to be in a position where if that's who you decide you're going to go for, you kind of get into it quickly and, and you, you're laying out your offer. You know, you're, you're making it clear that, that you want to take them. But the thing you can never preempt is the possibility that for example, a Champions League side are going to offer more money or are going to offer better football and you know are, are going to be able to to supersede what it is that you're putting on the table. So the, the last thing Alter ever wants to do is to get into a window cold, you know, and to get into a window where he's he's going after players that he either hasn't really done much homework on or, or done much groundwork on. So I, I think they will be a fair distance down the line, but it's never as straightforward as that. I know that uh, Radrazani said that Leeds had uh, left themselves quite exposed financially in the transfer market, you know, when they did the uh, the presser, when the 49ers took over their increased shareholding. Um, presser you were on, actually, weren't you? Um, yes. So where does that leave us in the transfer market for the summer? Do you think they're going to um, maybe stretch it a little bit again? Because we've got another, you know, assuming we do stay up, you're talking another 130, 150 million quid coming in and hopefully crowds will be back and, you know, increased commercial revenues and so on and so forth. Uh, do you think they'll maybe go for it again? Maybe with a little assistance from the uh, from Chad Hurley and the 49ers? They will try to. They're going to have to be mindful, as everybody is, of COVID and the, the impact that COVID is going to have on crowds and, and everything else from the summer onwards. I mean, nobody is even talking now about the possibility of crowds being back in before the end of the season. It's not to say that that it might not fall in a way where they're able to be a few trial events or, or whatever else. But the reason that there was the you know the big push for small crowds initially before Christmas was because clubs were genuinely hoping that small small crowds would lead to bigger crowds very quickly and that you would it would be a kind of gradual creep back towards something much closer to to full attendance. At this stage, you know, even having tiny crowds in for what's left of the season, there's no financial benefit to the clubs of that at all. Nothing significant. Um, so there isn't the same pressure, but. Without a doubt, they're going to want the crowds back in next season because, again, I mean, to take Leeds as an example, they've rolled over 20,000 season tickets, which were paid for for this season and are now there for next season. But that revenue disappears. You know, that that revenue for next season is no longer available. So that is going to influence things. You would like to think that come August, September time, we'll be much further down the road of vaccinations and that actually people will be getting it together with a proper concerted plan to get crowds back in and, and something that's going to hold. But yeah, I think if if they feel confident about their financial position and I think if they don't feel 
you know, ridiculously stretched by COVID and also by the previous summer window, then they absolutely will do significant business. I think they, they will definitely recruit one way or the other, but the amount they're able to spend is, is going to depend on other factors. I guess the factor there as well is that everyone's in the same boat with this, that every club is struggling for money and it's who needs it most, isn't it, at some point that, you know, maybe you'll, there'll be better values we had in the championship in this summer because there'll be everyone's absolutely broke there without the TV money or the, the France TV deals collapsed. Or we've, we've seen even Barcelona are kind of on the, the brink, of, aren't they, with their finances? Mm-hmm. So maybe there's maybe there'll be deals to be had if we've got a bit of money in the, in the bank. I think there are clubs who'll definitely have to deal. Yeah, no, there's, there's no question. Although it was quite interesting, there was a feeling last summer almost that because of COVID, it was a reason for clubs who, who weren't desperate to sell to, to absolutely maximise the, the value of any player's who were attracting offers, you know, it was the, the attitude was almost you have to take as much money as you can now from any transfer you do, as opposed to let's just get anything to help with the help with the accounts. And it would be wrong to say that Premier League clubs are fundament, fundamentally rich, but they have a huge amount of money coming in every every summer or, or every year, and there's a huge amount that goes out on wages and fees and, and everything else. It doesn't seem too much to ask that there's a, a little bit of of realignment if that if that's necessary but there will definitely be clubs across Europe this summer who are needing to cash in and are using players to, to pull in revenue that they can't get from elsewhere well thanks for that Phil thank you Michael we will watch uh, the coverage of all of that it'll be on The Athletic and right here on the podcast as well you can get subscribed at a half price offer at the minute for an annual sub until February 25th that's less than a quid a week for an entire year head to theathletic.com forward slash leads pod theathletic.com forward slash leads pod we'll speak to you next time the phil hay show